bit. All right, this, the title of today's sermon is This is How We Hope. This is how we hope. We're entering into the most heart-wrenching week of the Christian story this week. And if you allow yourself to enter into this week, it will be painful. And if you allow yourself to enter into the story this week, you will position yourself to experience a kind of hope that is distinctly Christian, a kind of hope that can only be experienced by Christians. And I would argue that this brand of hope, this kind of hope, this quality of hope is the only kind of hope that makes it through the night. It's the only kind of hope that makes it through the night. And I long for us to know this hope and to be deeply shaped and moved by this hope. So this is how we hope. Today is such a powerful and significant day in the Christian faith. It's known as Palm Sunday. It begins the most significant seven days in the Christian faith. Um, we know more about the next seven days of the life of Jesus than any other segment of his life. In fact, it's really the only period of Jesus's life that we can kind of connect to the calendar it locks into time, the gospel does, beginning today. Sometimes the gospel accounts will give us a hint of context. We'll know it was basically around this Passover feast that Jesus did this or that. But mostly we have no idea when the events in Jesus' life are taking place. But beginning today and extending all throughout this week and culminating this Friday and then ultimately on Sunday next, we know exactly what Jesus did every day of the week. We can actually say, oh, on this day, which we can say today, on this day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish um, experience, on a donkey, and hundreds of pilgrims who had gathered for the big Passover feast were cheering him on. That happened today. That's the day it happened, about 2,000 years ago. Or we can actually say like we can on Thursday... On this day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus shared his last supper with his disciples. And then after the meal, he, he washed their feet and he gave them a new command to love one another. On this day, more is written about this week in the life of Jesus than any other period of his life. For instance, the gospel of John's divided into 21 chapters. Eight of the last nine of those chapters have to do with the events of this week, the next seven days. Nearly half of John's gospel is dedicated to the events of this week. Several of the chapters at the end are, are dedicated to recording the final words that Jesus speaks, even the words he speaks from the cross as he's being crucified. It's like the gospels clip along at such a fast and rapid pace, but then they get to today and they begin to slow down. And we see what happens each day in the life of Jesus. And at the end of this week, it really slows down hour by hour. We're invited to experience the, the, the fullness of the story as it unfolds. And we get to relive it as a, in a sense. And it's important that we do relive it. Every year on my birthday, my mom will give me a call and she'll say, oh, I remember this day. You know, we went to this hospital, and this is how I was feeling, and this was the car that we drove, and you know, I was, that was, this is what was going on, and your dad had just barely gotten home from Vietnam, and the naval hospital was full, so we had to go to this hospital. It just relives the whole story for me, right? And it's important, and it matters. It's a way of really kind of getting your heart into it. It can be such a powerful experience to relive an event on the day that it happens, in other words, it's one thing to be able to say to somebody, hey, did you know that Jesus died for you? 
And think about how it's just a little bit different or maybe a lot different to be able to say, as you could say on Friday to somebody, hey, did you know that Jesus died for you today? Like this is the day that he died for you. I mean, I don't know how people just wander through Good Friday like it's just another day. I actually do know how people do that because I did it uh, for, for years. I just wasn't aware of the Christian calendar. I just hadn't connected my relationship with Jesus with the historical events of the life of Jesus. I just never really made that connection very well. When I was a senior in college, I lived in this 100-year-old Victorian house with five other guys. And uh, one beautiful spring afternoon, we're having a barbecue out in the front yard, and one of our roommates pulls up, and he's like, what are you doing? What? We're like, we're having a barbecue. And he's like, it's Good Friday. He was like, what are you thinking? You know, we just weren't thinking. We just weren't, we just weren't connected to that at all. And he was like, where are your heads? You guys are clueless. Don't you know what today is? You know, we're like, uh, no, we weren't. We were clueless. We, we just didn't make the connection. We weren't even thinking about it. Last year, um, Angela, who's pastoring our youth, she sent out a text to our kids every day of Holy Week to let them know what was happening, essentially, in the life of Jesus during the week. It was a great reminder, I thought. So I asked her to set it up for the whole church this week, uh, this year. And uh, if you'd like, you can opt into it. I'm sorry that the link is so crazy. But uh, if you want to, you can get one text a day. And I think there's maybe two or three on Friday. Just saying simply in a sentence, this is what Jesus did today. And here's the text where you can read about it in Scripture. Um, it, what that says is uh, RMD, that stands for remind, rmd.at forward slash 36, F is in Frank, 4, D is in dog, 8. I'm sure there was an easier way to do that, but I didn't know it. Uh, I encourage you to, to, to um, sign up for that um, for the week and uh, allow that to kind of guide your week through. We need to be aware of the events that happen in the life of Jesus this week. They are too significant to miss. And once you know, then you don't, you don't unknow them. Uh, once you become aware of this story, it, it, you can't back up from it. Sometimes people will say something like this to me. They'll say, you know, um, my dad died eight years ago today. And do you see how that matters? Or sometimes people will say, um, we were married 45 years ago today. And that matters. Some, this, this morning, Pat Coons told me, uh, I became a Christian. Wait, how many years did you say? 53 years ago today on Palm Sunday, right? And so it matters. You feel that. It happened. But it didn't just happen. It happened on this day. Day And somehow that makes a bit of a difference, doesn't it? It carries a weight, a significance that, that without that rootedness in, his, in history, you just can't really carry that in the same way. We don't often get to connect the events of our faith to specific days, but we do today. And we will all this next week. So let's begin by reading an account from this day, this Sunday in the life of Jesus. Then we'll read another account that happens one week from today in the life of Jesus. And then I want to teach a bit. And I hope that you'll notice between those two accounts this, how much changes in a week. I hope you'll notice the arc of this next week. I hope you'll notice the absolute crash 
that happens between today and a week from today. And then what I want to do is I want to teach on the biblical nature of hope. I want to teach on a distinctly Christian perspective on hope. And my goal this morning is that we will more clearly understand how we hope and ultimately that we'll be able to more fully be able to enter into experiencing this true hope that is, that is undefeatable, if I could make up a word, that is just unable to be defeated. All right, so let's look at Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. It's on page 733. And uh, this is what Luke records about this day, today, about 2,000 years ago. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In Matthew's account of the same day, he writes this. I'll put it on the screen. A very large crowd. This is Matthew 21, in case you want to check it. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is, a, is an exclamation of praise. It means save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. In Mark's account, he writes, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And then listen to this confrontational language in the gospel of John, they took branches, they went ahead to meet Jesus, shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. So question, are their hopes high or low? They're super high, right? They've never been this high. Since the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, they have never been this high. The accounts include so many symbolically rich details meant to communicate their hopeful expectations of the people. They believed Jesus was God. They believed Jesus was the long-expected Messiah. They believed Jesus was going to save them from their oppressors, the Roman government. They believed that Jesus was, on this day, going to leverage his popularity, leverage his power, the spiritual fervor of 
thousands of Jewish pilgrims which have gathered for the Passover feast, which, remember, commemorated their being freed from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years before. They believed he was going to set a revolution, rally the passionate nationalistic crowd, overthrow Rome, and set himself up as the new king of Israel. That's what they thought was going to happen. This was going to be their 4th of July. This was going to be their second exodus. This was the day. Their children would sing songs about this day. The hopes of those gathered for the feast had never been so high as they were this day. Now let's fast forward one week. Turn your pages to the right, if you're still in Luke's gospel, to chapter 24. Beginning in verse 13. Now that day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the last scene happened. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened in these days? He's incredulous, right? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, he replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers they handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one. So it's one week later. How are their hopes, high or low? Super low. They've never been lower. This is the lowest we see the hopes of the disciples of Jesus in the entire story. It's so low that the followers of Jesus, the same people who were laying their cloaks down before the one they believed was the new king of Israel, shouting, praise God, this is the long-expected descendant of King David. This is the one who has come to save us. This is our new king. These are the same people whose hopes had never been higher just one week before. Now they're devastated. Nothing they hoped would happen has happened. Nothing. Not one thing. What did happen was actually far worse than anything they could have imagined. Not only did Jesus not become king, he did not free them from Rome. He was arrested, he was tortured, and he was killed. And their hope is gone. I mean, it's gone. They are so deeply disappointed that this simple question, what are you talking about, it stops them in their tracks. They can't even, it, like their throat grips they can't even talk about it. They're devastated. They can't even look up. We had hoped, they say, past tense, because hope's over now. It's gone. And they're walking away from it all. They're leaving. Friends, here's why their hope is gone. It's because it wasn't Christian. It was common. Their hope is gone because the hope they have is not fully Christian hope. It's just 
common hope. Common hope, or what we typically think of as hope, is actually more like optimism. And optimism is very different from a biblical understanding or a Christian understanding of hope. In this way, optimism is based on favorable circumstances. You look around and you say, huh, things are looking up. All the signs are pointing in the right direction. Odds are in my favor, right? Chances are good. Optimism is this positive perspective that is based on favorable circumstances. The crowds of people who cheered for Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago today, they're feeling really optimistic. Their hope at this point is based largely on what they can see. What can they see? A powerful, popular national hero with hundreds of followers who are riding into town together declaring he's the new king. And a lot of people seem to be really happy about it. The tide is finally turning in the favor of the Jews. We might say, of course they're feeling hopeful. Of course they're feeling optimistic. All the signs are pointed in the right direction. Optimism has been described as rational and secular because it's based in practical evidence. The stuff you can see and I know there's the famous optimism, pessimism image of the glass half empty or half full. What do you think it is, right? Which, of course, has its place. But you know what? That reveals a leaning if all things are exactly neutral. If it's 50-50, it could go either way. And that's what we talk about. But far more common is a situation where people are said to be optimistic when, in fact, all the signs are pointing in the right direction, right? The evidence shows there is reason to be optimistic. Do you, you follow me? Yeah, I feel good about tomorrow. I got lots of reasons to feel good about tomorrow. I got some money in the bank. I got a house to live in. My family loves me. I have some good friends. I'm feeling healthy. And the weather report says sunny and 75. It's going to be great, right? Of course, I have reasons to be optimistic, reasons to be hopeful, so in common language, we would say, I feel hopeful about tomorrow. But you got to get this. This is not the kind of life-sustaining hope that the Bible talks about. Okay, That's just optimism based on evidence. Optimism is not the same as hope. It is, it's far from the specific kind of hope that is embraced and proclaimed by Christians in the New Testament. Do you recognize this guy, Andrew Brunson? Does anybody, anybody know this story? A couple people, maybe? Andrew and I went to the same college. He was a few years ahead of me. I never actually met him, but the man who discipled me discipled him. After college in the early 90s, he got married. He was from North Carolina. He moved to Turkey to start a church. It's called the Church of the Resurrection. He's pastored there 25 years. 18 months ago, in the wake of a coup against the existing government in Turkey, a thousand people were arrested and uh, asked questions. What is the word? Interrogated. They, they uh, arrested Andrew as well. They let almost everybody go. They kept Andrew. And for 17 months, he's been in one prison cell with 17 other men, none of which are Christian, all of which are Muslim, which is a real point of pressure, without any stated reason for his arrest. No formal charges. 
This last week, he was finally charged. And in a 62-page indictment, he is accused his crime is Christianization. That's what he's accused of. Preaching Christ in a place where uh, that has not been illegal. And the specific crimes listed include providing humanitarian aid and education. And this trial begins in a couple of weeks. And if convicted, he will serve a 35-year prison sentence. And he's already 50. Now, Andrew's being represented by lawyers from the ACLJ and have actually included a little blurb in your sermon notes inviting you to consider, as I have, signing a petition, which feels like almost nothing to me. Uh, But it's what they are saying will help. As of last night, there are like 82,000 signatures on this petition. His wife spoke to Rex Tillerson, former Secretary of State, until a couple of weeks ago. Uh, His daughter, about three weeks ago, spoke in the UN about her dad's situation, which must have been brutal. Nothing seems to be changing. Last month, I visited this couple who discipled me in college, who also, they were very connected with Andrew and his family, and they said, uh, he's pretty much giving up hope. Because all of the signs are against him. All the odds are stacked against him. He's caught up as a pawn in the middle of a big political chaotic mess. Apparently there's a Muslim cleric in some prison in the United States and they want him and they're going to hold Andrew until they get him and the United States is giving no indication that they're going to play that game. And so uh, they say he's, he's losing hope. And yet... On another level, he will not let go of his hope in Christ. In a common sense, he is without hope for release. And in a sense that is distinctly Christian, he is still hopeful. And those who know Andrew and have been praying, as we have in our nighttime prayers most of this year, we've been praying that Andrew would be freed from prison. And we've also been praying that if he is not, that he will never lose hope in Christ That quality of hope that we read about in the pages of the Bible, in the letters written by people like Paul when he was in prison, in the letters we read by Peter, letters written to people who are being persecuted. Friends, the hope that we read about in the Bible, and we read about the fullness of this hope beginning in the books of the New Testament like Acts, and all through the rest of the New Testament in the letters written by people like Peter and Paul, this full-blown hope, it's embraced by the early Christians. It is a deep-rooted confidence about the future, and it is not based in or dependent upon present circumstances. It's qualitatively different. It is a deep confidence. It is not wishful thinking. It's not living with a dream. It's not an optimistic outlook on life. It is a confidence in God, period. It's not confidence in scientific development, in technological advancement. It's not confidence in human potential. It's not confidence in national pride or personal strength. And it is far beyond this flimsy, situational optimism that passes as hope in most places. It can survive, real hope can. It can even thrive in situations where things are not looking up, where the odds are stacked against you, 
where the signs are not pointing in the right direction. Biblical hope is about God and about what God will do. What God will do both in the short term, like next week, and in the long term, like in the end. And on Palm Sunday, this day, 2,000 years ago, crowds cheered Christ as he rode into Jerusalem. Why were they cheering for Christ? Because everything was looking good, man. I mean, the signs were pointing in the right direction. But one week later, when nothing had worked out as they had hoped, the crowds are gone, the cheering is done, and the followers of Jesus are devastated, and some of them are bailing out. Of course they're devastated. Of course they're devastated for several reasons. It was their friend, Jesus, who had been killed. So clearly there's a disappointment there that's almost impossible for us to recognize. But Jesus, the one that they thought would put the whole thing back together, he's been killed. And so from their perspective, it's over. The Emmaus Road Travelers, they say, we had hoped he was the one. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But they're not hoping anymore. Because the evidence is clear. Nothing's going their way anymore. Odds are not in their favor. There is no longer any reason to hope. And then Jesus, <laughs> the same one who died a couple of days ago, the same one that was buried in a tomb before sunset on Friday, walks up to them and says, How foolish you are. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And in saying that, friends, Jesus opens the door to a distinctly Christian hope. And it's a hope that is rooted in God and in only what God can do. Things like resurrection. Okay? Beyond your ability to imagine, right? And that changes everything for Christians forever. This is the new wine. It doesn't even fit in the old containers. It blows our minds. It's so beyond our ability to even conceive of. No amount of adverse evidence can defeat this hope. This hope is Christian. It is undefeatable. You can't, you can't push this down. What are you going to do? How are you going to beat this? And so from this point forward, you have followers of Jesus facing all manner of adversity. They tie him to stakes and they build fires around him and they don't lose hope. They throw him into arenas and they let tigers out and they watch it for entertainment. They don't lose hope. I mean, it's phenomenal. Things do not look good, but they are hopeful. This is the testimony. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you need to read it. You should read the perspective of these people who are getting their lives thrashed. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, before he's killed on a Roman cross, upside down, writes this. He writes this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. We've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is all ready to be revealed in the last time. New birth into a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. And the basis of Christian hope is the fact of the resurrection. 
Therefore, the Christian can experience true hope. The Christian can experience a hope that lives, friends, and does not die, even in the face of overwhelming odds or even death. This, then, is what Christians mean by hope. This is what we mean by hope. This is a biblical understanding of hope. This is a deep-rooted confidence in God and in what God will do. Things that you cannot see or even imagine. Things like resurrection from the dead. This is what Christians mean when we talk about hope. Amen? Now, briefly, let me just quickly talk about how we hope. And this will be short. I've just gathered a few points from along our journey. Um, our own battles to hold on to hope, and we have battled. Four quick ideas. One, this is how we hope. We focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. I'm not talking about ignoring reality, and I'm not talking about pretending. The Christians in the Roman Colosseum are not pretending there are no lions there. That's not what they're doing. But they are not focusing on them. Their focus is on something beyond that. Our friend Mary Ferris was not pretending that she did not have terminal cancer, but neither was she focusing on that. Okay. She was not focusing on that. She was focusing on what God would do, who God was. She's focusing on the unseen is what she was doing. The unseen is, of course, mostly unexpected, and that's what makes it difficult. But did you notice in the stories that we've been reading all through Lent how Hope often comes to people in ways that were unexpected, potentially unimaginable. Like the best example is the disciples in a boat in the middle of a lake in the middle of a storm, and they're going to die. They're thinking they're going to drown. And they wake up Jesus, and he doesn't help them row back to shore. He calms the wind and the waves. I mean, who saw that coming, right? That's completely other. It's unexpected. Friends, you exercise hope without the benefit of sight. You exercise hope without the benefit of sight if it's Christian hope. If it's good old secular optimism, then go ahead and take in all the signs, right? Try to make a best call. But if it's Christian hope, you exercise that without the benefit of sight because hope does not focus on what is seen. Secondly, how do you hope? Got to reject the lies of culture. Got to say no to a false and flimsy version of hope. We got to refuse to allow the voices that say to us, there's no reason to hope, win the battle for our hearts. Don't let them win the battle for your hearts. We need to recognize that these voices are deceptive. They are destructive in nature. That's why they're there. They're meant to destroy our hope. For about a year, our church has been hosting a Gamblers Anonymous group here for a while in the theater. Now they're over at the Foundry at the Youth Center. I love hanging out with these people. One guy told me, they tell me great stories. One guy said, yeah, the lie I was telling myself was that I was going to be the guy in the family who had the ability to pay for things to help everybody out. That was the lie he was telling himself that caused him to just continue to gamble, gamble, gamble. And then he said, and when I finally got to the end of that lie, then the lie that I told myself was, I'm not worth anything. I should just kill myself. Both of those are lies, right? Neither one of those is, is true. Um, 
The enemy of your soul wants you to believe this is the end, but that's a lie. Christian hope is rooted in the conviction that this is not the end of the story. The enemy of your soul wants you to believe, oh, it's over now, but the Christian hope is rooted in the conviction that it's not over now. There's something that happens after it's over now, right? This over is not actually the end. Third idea, this is how we hope. We say yes to the truth. We embrace the truth. And this is why this worship gathering, friends, is so critical. This is why we have declared every single week, 676 weeks in a row, every single Sunday gathering we've had since 2005, we have said together this, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is the truth, right? This is the fundamental gospel that's stronger than the lies. And we need to remind ourselves of it. Every week, we need to embrace it every week. We've got to say yes to the truth. We do have reason to hope. The signs in my life may not be pointing me to an optimistic outlook, but I still have a reason to hope. And then finally, how do we hope? We've got to pray for hope. We've got to ask God to give us the gift of hope. Faith, hope, and love, classically understood, as theological virtues. Sometimes they are called supernatural virtues. Sometimes they're called infused virtues because they're given by the divine. As opposed to natural virtues like courage or prudence because hope and faith and love, they're gifts. You can't reason faith. You can't like train yourself to fall in love ultimately. And hope in a similar sense it's not all the way up to you. You have to be given the gift of hope, this ability to hope. We should, as much as possible, we should choose hope, and we should also pray for the grace to be hopeful. Pray, God, God, I need you to fill me with hope. There is a degree to which I need something that I cannot do myself here, and I need the gift of hope. Ultimately, Christian hope, this powerful, life-giving confidence, it's a gift from God. So we should all pray to be filled with hope. Amen? Focus on the unseen. Reject the lies. Embrace the truth. Pray for the gift of hope. Friends, we're all on this journey, aren't we? It's amazing to me. It's amazing. 24 hours, what I see and hear. Some of you guys, life is looking good. Things are turning up. Things are improving. Signs are pointing in the right direction. The odds are for you. And some of you guys are having a hard time. Gosh, things are just, they keep breaking. Odds seem to be just stacked against you, one after another. Hope, then, is living in this moment of your journey in confident expectation that Jesus Christ is up ahead on the path. He's not waiting for you like this. He's running towards you. He's running to rescue you. He is for you. He has conquered sin and death. Amen. We can place our hope in him. Let's pray together. So I ask for perspective, Lord, on the things that are overwhelming things that threaten and often succeed in robbing us 
of any real hope. Can't really live without it. The despair will destroy us. And so I pray for grace to recognize the difference between optimism and Christian hope. And I also pray for grace to embrace that hope. And ultimately, I pray that you would give us that hope. And this week, as we walk with you through the suffering of your final week, may we do so in a way that enables us to truly grieve sin and brokenness and our own rebellion. May we also do so in a way that knows this is not the end. And may we have a deep um, ability or capacity um, to receive a hope that is triumphant. In Jesus' name, amen.